I am excited this morning to come to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, and consider with you verses 9 through 15. And I marvel at God's providence in planning this preaching series such that we could be here this morning. I could never have planned that. I, I mean it. I, I actually took a class in seminary many years ago on planning a year's preaching. And I've never used it because I'm just not that good of a planner. I, week by week, I, I try to look ahead, but as best I can, I, I, I try to figure out how much I can preach on, how much we can get through, and what would be most helpful and so really, my determining the passages is mostly week by week, and it's just God's providence that when I started the book of Zechariah this fall, that we would land on this passage this morning. It is remarkable because we come to what is arguably one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture on the coronation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you may not know that, and that is because the book of Zechariah is perhaps one of the most neglected books in the Bible, and that's really a shame. And I hope that through this preaching series, preaching through the book of Zechariah, to, to convince you, to persuade you that one of your favorite books of the Bible will become Zechariah. Um, if you put me on an island and I could only have five books of the Bible, let's say with one hand, that would be very tough. I would want Hebrews, I would want Isaiah, and I definitely would want Zechariah. The other two, I'd probably want one of the Gospels, probably Matthew, but Zechariah would be there. Why? Because like Isaiah, Zechariah is God giving to his people, telling us the presence he's going to give us. I mean, not presence, I mean presence with a T there. In the kingdom to come. And here, Zechariah is a prophet. He is a young man. He has been given by God the privilege of preaching to the people of Israel and Judah when they are discouraged by this time 520 or so years 522 years before the birth of Christ by this time the kingdom of Israel in the north has been is no more because it's been decimated by the Assyrians and now uh, the kingdom of Judah in the south 70 years earlier had been overrun by the Babylonians now the Persians are ruling the world, the known world, and a small, rather beleaguered group of Jews have returned to a land that has been war-torn, that is largely in ruins. They had set about rebuilding the temple about 15 years earlier and had only gone so far as the first foundation stone layer when the work had come to a grinding halt. They were discouraged. They had lots of difficulties from without and from within. Do you know anything of what that's like? Um, ever be discouraged in some of the building projects or the hopes that you have? 
ever feel like the world's against you? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, they had that and more. And God sent two prophets, one, Zechariah was a priest, Haggai and Zechariah, to announce God's word to the people at this time to encourage them. And to Zechariah, so far in the book, what God has done is given to this young priest a series of visions in the night, in the dark of night, about God's future for Israel, that God has not forsaken Israel and Judah, God has not forgotten, even though the nations of the world may trample on Israel and Judah, even as we're seeing happen in our present time, that God has not forgotten these people that he chose for his own wisdom and mercy, and his own wisdom and mercy for holy and wonderful purposes. And that, in fact, God is going to remove sin from Israel and Judah. He's going to change their hearts. He's not only going to remove sin from Israel and Judah, he's going to remove sin and sinners from the whole world. And that may make us a little nervous, but also in that series of visions in the night, God gave to Zechariah an amazing picture of, of removing the sin of Joshua the high priest and clothing him in righteousness. So God not only removes sinners, he saves sinners and removes sin from those who trust in him. It's a series of visions that are full of comfort, of gospel hope. And we come now to the pinnacle, the the end of these visions, and the highlight, which is an illustration of the coming coronation of, of the Christ. So with that, I want to begin by reading God's word in Zechariah chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version, which translates the Hebrew covenant name of of the Lord as as it is, Yahweh. And the word of Yahweh came to me, says Zechariah, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you come the same day and come into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have come from Babylon. And take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Then you will say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he who will bear the splendor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a memorial in the temple of Yahweh to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, and it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray one more time to ask for God's help. Oh God, you know that we can tend to struggle with prophetic portions of your scripture. 
these names and these places and practices are often unfamiliar to us as we are separated by now some 2,500 plus years. So we come to you and we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would take this ancient but living and present word and give us understanding with our minds and a due sense in our hearts that we may go out from this place today rejoicing in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, God had given to Zechariah these eight visions in the night. And now, after these eight visions, God gives to Zechariah a prophetic word. This is not a vision. This happens in real life. God gives to Zechariah a, a revelation, a word. And he lets Zechariah know that as God is revealing this to Zechariah, there are three men who are traveling, three godly men, this Heldai, this Tobijah, and Jediah, who are traveling from Babylon. We need to remember that, that the Babylonians 70 and more years earlier had, had come into the land of Judah and had conquered all the cities, all the towns, including Jerusalem ultimately, and had killed much of the population, but also had taken a lot of the population away and out of the land and into what is modern-day Iraq, where Babylon was. And these Jewish men and women had been living there, some of them now, with their families for a hundred years. They lived in certain towns. They had businesses. They, their kids, in some cases their grandchildren, had grown up in exile. Nonetheless, among those who were godly and feared God's word, there was always an eye to the west, to the southwest, to to Jerusalem. Uh, There was a, a longing to see the city rebuilt and the worship of God restored, the temple rebuilt. And we're reminded here that not all Jews could return with the with the edict of, of, of Xerxes and to return, that some remained in the land and yet they, they were listening and for news from afar. How, how was the work going? How was the rebuilding of the temple going? And doubtless they had heard that, in fact, it had come to a halt. And so God had moved in the hearts of some of these God-fearing, godly Jews in exile to bring offer an offering of gold and silver and to put it in the hands of these three trustworthy godly men, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. You notice their names are changed down in verse 14, and, and, and that's simply because these men could have a few different names. We'll, we'll learn in a few minutes about or, or refer to King Uzziah. King Uzziah's name was also Azariah. It's kind of like, if you ask me, what's your name? I could say Gabe or I could say Gabriel. Which is it? Yes, both. Um, I don't use either when I make an order because they mess it up. If I say Gabriel, they say Gabrielle. If I say Gabe, they say Gabby. So I say Rogers. And even then they don't get it right. They say Roger, which is okay because I have a friend whose name's Roger. So but one person can have multiple names, right? And so these three men are entrusted with this offering from these Jews in exile of gold and silver and they're bringing it several hundred miles 
not exactly comfortable, no railway, no car, no vehicle, and they're bringing it like the Magi would 500 years later, and they're bringing this offering of silver and gold to support the work of the rebuilding of the temple in the city. Well, when they set out, all they knew was they were bringing this offering, and they were excited, and they had a solemn task, but they had no idea initially when they sent out that they would be ordained by God providentially to be part of a word, of a revelation of the future coronation of the Messiah, the King. They had no idea that the silver and gold that they were carrying with them and guarding from robbers and thieves along the way, that that gold and that silver would be used to make, verse 11, a very ornate crown that would be set on on the head of of the high priest. They didn't know that. And Zechariah didn't know. There's no text messaging. There's no no phone call from Babylon. Hey, just to let you guys know, we're going to bring down some gold and silver so you can play on that, right? They don't know. This is a revelation from God. Zechariah does not know these men are coming, but on the very same day they are to arrive in Jerusalem and to go to the house of the priest, the Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, they... Zechariah learns that God had a special purpose for this silver and gold, and God was going to use it for a living illustration of the future coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I just want to pause. I'm, I'm rather excited about this passage, if you haven't picked up on it already. Um, I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning, and I mean that. I, I, I'm not putting it on. I I, I, I love passages like this because they're, a, they're like a window you can look into, into the coming of the kingdom. But I want to just pause and I want to ask us this morning, I want to ask you, do you have some concrete um, thoughts about the coming kingdom of Christ? Do you have some tangible, concrete uh, thoughts and, and images even in your mind. I, I know that the Bible is a Bible, a book of words, and, and God didn't give to us pictures. And so I, I understand that every picture I have in my head about the coming of kingdom, when, when I actually get there, I'm going to think, wow, this is, this is a lot different and so much more glorious than any picture I had in my head. But nonetheless, I'm pressing you a little this morning. When you sing about Christ your King, When you sing about the kingdom, when you hear about peace on earth, do you have some concrete thoughts in your head as to what that kind of looks like? I'm pressing you a little gently this morning to say to you, you should. Because, and it's part of my job and part of my burden is, is I want to equip you. I want to put in your heart some concrete thoughts about the future. I want to take these thoughts about king and kingdom and out of just the wispy nothingness that's often in our hearts and our heads, and I want to put some shape to them. And, and I can't do that. Why am I saying this? Because God does. I, I remember as a boy, uh, before the days of internet, and uh, uh, that if you wanted an idea of what to ask your parents for Christmas, you'd pick up like a Sears catalog or a catalog with the toy section. Anybody remember that? All right. And oh man, around like, I don't know, September, October, uh, you start looking through there and uh, 
you had no idea what kind of toys were being made and you're just blown away and, and your heart just starts to build with what the possibilities are. Well, my parents never told me what they were giving us. <laughs> so I never had any idea. And um, usually it wasn't what I thought in the catalog I might get. <laughs> and, uh, and that was okay. What I did get was usually amazing and it helped that I had an aunt who was one of the designers at Hasbro. So every year I could count on my aunt, have something pretty unique for us. But I digress. Uh, so so we, we had to look in the catalog to get an idea. But imagine if, if parents um, had, if my parents had said, okay, now I want you to open up to such and such a page. And, and you see this? You, wow, yeah, I see that. That's what you're going to get this year. Wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that? Yeah, that's, that's what you're going to get. And imagine the buildup. You could anticipate that. That would be pretty cool. Well, that's what God does in his word. Again and again through the prophets, God tells us the nature and shape and kind of kingdom that his people are going to be a part of and participate in. And at the center of it, of course, is a person, a man, who is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ And here this morning, God tells us, he tells us a little bit about the glory of the kingdom that you, believer in Jesus Christ, are going to witness with your resurrected eyes. It's going to be wonderful. Well, I want you to notice first, let's just now in verses 9 and 15. I want you to notice that even the shape of this paragraph, of this revelation, uh, what I mean is the... the, uh, the order and design of it is even beautiful. The, the greatest part of it, of course, is at the center of it. And it is this, this mysterious figure called the branch and this coronation of this king and the crown. And that's in verses 11 through 13. That's at the heart of it. But on either side of that is a, like beautiful bookends is this offering that comes from these three godly men and they are Jews who are coming to the land. And then down in verse 15, we learn about those who are in the future, who are far off, who will come to worship the Lord. And so what I want you to see is even the beauty of the shape of the text. At the heart of it is the king and his coronation and his amazing crown and his amazing rule and his amazing identity as a priest king. But on either end, you have those who are coming to worship. On the front end, you have Jews coming from exile, as God had promised to worship. And on the back end, you have in the future, you have these ones who are from far off. So with that observation, now let's look at these three sections. And we'll spend most of our time in the center. First, there's a visitation to picture a future migration. A future, a visit, a present visitation of these three men, a visitation to picture a future migration. Migration. We see here these three godly men, as I've already referenced, they are returning. They are exiles, and they're returning from, verse 10, from Babylon. Exile. Babylon, which is the city of of sin, of wickedness. It is representative, we've learned, of like Shinar. It is the place where mankind built the Tower of Babel. It was the place of pronounced wickedness. 
And it is in the last days, apparently, the, the center of the Antichrist rebellion against God. They are returning from Babylon, from captivity, and they are bringing with them an offering. And this is more than just a, a description of what happened in 522 BC. These three men, and going to the priest house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and with Zechariah meeting them there, it is a confirmation by the Lord. It is a picture that God will be true to his promise to gather in his people, the Jews, in the last days from all around the world, and a remnant of godly, God-fearing Jews will return. In Isaiah chapter 60, a beautiful chapter about the future, in verse 9, God promised Surely the coastlands will hope in me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. Whose sons? The sons of Zion, of Jerusalem, the Jews. So God says in the last days, the sons of Zion, the Jews, will be brought from afar, their silver and their gold with them. Now Isaiah is a prophet who lived... hmm, roughly 250 to 300 years prior to Zechariah. So this idea, this promise that in the last days that, that Jews from every tribe will return from every portion of the world and that they will bring with them offerings of silver and gold, it is told not just in Isaiah, but in numerous places in the prophets. God will do that. And here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, is a small but significant confirmation. God is going to gather in his people, the Jews, in the last day to the land. He's already doing that, of course, with the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948. That is unheard of in human history. That a people who have not been a nation for some 2,000 years would be reconstituted as a nation. It is not happenstance. That is a foreshadowing of a reality in the last days. But when they come in the last days, they will come not merely as a, as a mere Jewish identity. They will be gathered in as those who are God-fearing and Jesus Christ-loving. It'll be glorious. But secondly this morning, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, as we move from this picture of the future in gathering of the Jews, in verses 11 and following, we have a crown and coronation to picture a future king and kingdom. We have a crown and a coronation to picture a future king and kingdom. Now, now just note, by way of observation, we're going to look at five five truths about this crown and this coronation and this man. But, but just a few observations. First, notice that this crown is made of silver and gold, and it is a, it is a very elaborate crown. Um, in, in the Hebrew, there's a plural aspect to it, so it's, it's crowns. So when we sing, crown him with many crowns, this is the passage that him is reflecting on, and as well as Revelation 19. The, the crown that Christ the Lamb is pictured as wearing is, is no simple crown. It is, a, 
it is a beautiful, majestic, multi-tiered, multi-faceted crown, complex and beautiful. It is a glorious and ornate crown comprised of pure silver and gold. And, and we just have to note by way of observation that this coronation is shocking. Zechariah is given instructions to take the silver and gold from these three men coming from ex- the exiles, and he is to make an ornate crown. And then he is to take the crown, and he is to set it on the head. And here's the shocking part. He's to take that ornate crown, Zechariah the prophet, and to set it on, not on the head of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, who is a godly leader of, of Judah at this time, Zerubbabel thus is, is in the line of David. He's in the line of the kings. No, it doesn't go on the head of Zerubbabel. It goes on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. That's shocking. The Two offices of priest and king, according to God's design for Israel, were separate. This is most powerfully illustrated in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, when King Uzziah, a descendant of David, and largely a godly king, but in his old age he wasn't content to just be king. And the reason for that is all the pagan kings, all the surrounding kings, they were often thought of as as the high priest. And so they were the ones who not only ruled, but they were also the ones who had the preeminence in the worship. Not so with the kings of Israel by God's design. The, the, The kings of Israel and Judah were to be separate. They were the priests were from the tribe of Levi, not the line of David. And yet this crown to be fashioned of silver and gold in all of its ornate majesty was to be set by Zechariah on the head of the priest. What's going on? When King Uzziah went in to act as a priest in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, Azariah the priest entered after King Uzziah, and we, I'm reading from Second Chronicles 26, they stood against Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are set apart as holy to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. And then in the very next verse, Uzziah is all angry and he's... A, he's, he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to annihilate these kings. And then leprosy starts to break out on the head of Uzziah, and they quickly usher him out of the temple. And by that time, Uzziah is in agreement. He's in a hurry to get out of the temple too. The last time a king acted as a priest broke out with leprosy. Why? Because God was maintaining the uniqueness and singular majesty that would belong to the Messiah. So those were just a few observations. Zechariah is to make an ornate crown and the crown was to go on to the priest. Then in verses 12 through 13, God tells Zechariah and us what all this means. He gives the crown and Zechariah is to set the crown on, on the priest, Joshua, 
in order to tell us something, in order to teach us something, in order to reveal something. And God tells us. First, God will bring about the kingdom by and through one man. God will bring about the kingdom by and through one man. Verse 12, thus you will say to him, that is, Zechariah is commanded to say to Joshua, thus says Yahweh of hosts. That, that, I need to just stop there. That, that phrase is so important. And that, that God has to use that because otherwise everyone would think that this is almost blasphemous to put a crown on a priest's head. But God is the one who can change his law and the only one. And he says to Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man, behold a man. That's not incidental. God is telling us that there is going to be ultimately one man singular who will be both king and priest, who will be the priest, who will be the the one who brings about the kingdom. God will bring about the kingdom by and through one man. And it is not coincidental that in the Apostle John's gospel, in John 19, verse 5, that he emphasized the words of Pilate when he brought Jesus before the people and Pilate said, Behold the man. John is highlighting for those who knew their Old Testament the, the tragedy that in the days of Jesus that they were crucifying the very man that had been prophesied that would bring about the kingdom God will bring about the kingdom by and through one man. We're not looking for an angel. We're looking for a man. A man. And that man, we know who he is. He is Jesus Christ. Secondly, this man is the branch. Branch, verse 12. A man whose name is Branch. Now, I don't know about you, but I I have to admit, that is not one of the most frequent titles I use for Jesus. Um, I haven't thought of that title, but even this week as I was studying, I thought I need to use that, that name for Jesus more often because it's not only here. Listen to just a few passages that refer to Jesus as the branch. For example, a very well-known passage this time of year, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. God there through Isaiah said, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, of course, David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The idea is that out of the line of Jesse and David, a line that had seemingly been cut down and almost eliminated unexpectedly, as it was in the days of Jesus, a man like an unexpected branch would branch out from that, from that trunk. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, the branch, will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. And even in the book of Zechariah, this isn't the first time. Turn back with me to chapter 3, verse 8. There we were told 
by God. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. The branch is a messianic title, and it's a glorious title. What it refers to is that from this God had made a promise, and from this line of David, the line of Jesse, that seemingly was was a rotten trunk, had been cut down and virtually eliminated, a, a kingly line that in the days of Zechariah was a joke. I mean, Zerubbabel was in the line, but it's not as though he had a throne to sit on. He was, he was like a county commissioner. That's all the glory that the line of David had. And yet God said, unexpectedly from this line that seemingly seems decimated, seems dead, out of that line there's going to be a bud and then there's going to be a branch and it is going to branch out, verse 12 of Zechariah 6, branch out from where he is. This branch is going to go, it's going to come unexpectedly and it's going to grow and it's going to grow strong. I know you know this, but I like trees in spite of the fact that I, I do cut a few down here and there. But I like trees. I, I like the, I, one of my favorite trees is, is white oaks. We are blessed in this part of the world with beautiful white oak trees. And one of the aspects of white oaks is that their branches um, are some of the most strong branches there are. You know, pine branches, right? What We're used to it. We get a heavy, wet storm, and those pine branches are going to snap and break and come down in our houses. Uh, white oaks, their branches can go practically straight out, horizontal, and yet they will carry the load. I mean, you can, you can put a good swing set on there or you can climb up on it if you're a young person and, and you're pretty safe. You can count on it if it's a white oak branch. And, and sometimes the branches on a white oak, they just, they go in directions that are unexpected. They, they don't, they surprise you. Uh, no, no other tree would grow its branches in that way. The idea here is that Christ comes unexpectedly from the line of David and, and you, you maybe weren't counting on it when he was coming. And that's what we're celebrating this Christmas is that the king came, this man came at an unexpected time and he is risen from the dead and you want to count on it. This branch is strong. You can, you can weigh your, put the weight of your life and your eternity on this branch. He is a glorious branch. And I'm serious when I say to you, dear ones, that from this day forward, by God's grace, when we are out and about and maybe in beautiful places, and when you see a big or beautiful majestic tree with a branch going out from it that is a strong branch, you and I ought to, from this day forward, think, that strong branch is a little picture of my king. And he is a glorious branch. Use that image because it's God-given in the pages of Scripture. So first, God will bring about the kingdom by one man. Behold the man. Secondly, this man is the branch, the Messiah. It's not just any man. This is the man, the Christ, the branch in the line of David. Thirdly, we, God tells us in Zechariah 6... This branch, Messiah, will build the millennial temple. He will build the temple. We're told in verse 12, he, the branch, will build the temple of the Lord. And in case we didn't pick up on it, 
Verse 13 repeats it. I'm so thankful for repeats, aren't you? Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. Now, this pointed far beyond the day of Zechariah. Yes, they would rebuild the temple under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel, uh, the line of David, and Joshua, the high priest. They would stir the people up. They would build the temple. But that's not the temple that's being talked about here. This is a temple to surpass all temples. That when Christ comes again, and and we say millennial temple because the idea of a period of time on this present earth, not the new earth, this present earth when the king comes in power and removes Satan, hauls him off into prison for a thousand years, told plainly in Revelation. But it's not just, we we don't just learn of it in Revelation, we learn of it in the prophets, we learn of it in, in Isaiah, we learn of it in Ezekiel. Seven chapters of Holy Scripture. Seven chapters. That's a lot of ink in a a book. Seven chapters in Ezekiel chapter 40 onward given to describing the glorious, expansive nature of this temple in the future. And there's a great divide here among God-fearing Christians, and I have dear brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that all of that detail in Ezekiel chapter 40 is somehow just descriptive of the glory of the worship of the church. But I don't think my God works that way. When he tells us dimensions, I don't think he lies. I think he means it. When he tells us about walls and gates, I think he means walls and gates. When he tells us that there'll be a water of life flowing out from the threshold of the temple, I think there will be a water of life throwing out, out, flowing out from the threshold of the temple. There's going to be a glorious temple when Christ returns, sets his feet down on this earth, at the outset of that millennial reign, there will be a building of a house of worship that will make every other house of worship that's ever been built look puny, pathetic, and insignificant by comparison. Sometimes we watch uh, this time of year uh, performances by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and um, and uh, it's sad because they they sing about Christ, but they actually they diminish Christ. They diminish Christ. Christ is, according to the Church of Latter-day Saints, not actually one with the Father. He's just a man. We worship a man who is both God and man. But, but we, if we watch or you see videos of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, it's beautiful, the singing and so forth. But you see that, that building they've built out there. It's massive and it's impressive. This temple that Jesus is going to build? Wait till you see that. It's going to be marvelous. He will build this temple. And again, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if you think I'm speculating this morning, I'm pointing you to verse 12 and verse 13. What else does it mean? When God speaks, he means something. He uses words that have meaning and truth. He says the branch, the Messiah, will build the temple of the Lord. Indeed, 
Now, when God says indeed, I mean, when he says one thing and then he says and he repeats it, introduced by indeed, you want to take note of it. Say, oh, this is important. Indeed. Let this get into your head. Let it sink into your ears, as Jesus would say. Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Count on it. Fourthly, this morning, we learned that the branch in verse 13, upon building the temple, it is he, and this is my, I'm just quoting from verse 13, he, the branch will bear the splendor, sit and rule on his throne. For my outline, I was thinking how I could summarize that, and I think, I don't want to change that. I like that. He will bear the splendor, sit and rule on his throne. That's awesome. It's awesome. Um, we live in a world that can't handle too much splendor. Um, we live in a world where there's the appearance of beauty and glory often among men. Um, yeah, one of the disappointments when you're a kid, uh, if you looked at the catalog of toys <laughs> or you saw something on the shelf and you, you couldn't wait for it, you unwrapped it and then you played for a little while and it, it didn't hold up to all the glory of the advertisement. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That happens not for just little kids, that happens for big kids too. You get the new car or the new vehicle or the new toy and oh boy, it's awesome. And then you've played with it a little bit and it's, it can't bear the glory. Jesus has the glory of God, bears the glory of God, and he will bear it immensely, perfectly, for eternity. He can handle it. And the glory of God upon his shoulders will be evident in the kingdom. The branch will bear the splendor. He will, he will be the visible embodiment of the Shekinah glory of God. He will sit, which means that his rule will be undisputed. This is after Christ comes and fights against his enemies. We're going to learn about that more in Zechariah. We've already learned about it, that this angel of the Lord, who is the Christ, that one day he's going to send forth his angels and he himself is going to enter into the battle to defeat the foes of his people. But this is after the fight, and this means that his rule will be undisputed. It won't be an issue of votes. You won't have to go to any courts to settle it. You, you won't have to worry about some foreign nation or some foreign power undermining it. He will bear this glory, and he will sit. His reign will be settled, and notice verse 13, he will rule on his throne. He won't, his, his throne won't just be an initial achievement. He won't just win the victory and have the achievement for a little while. But his power and his dominion will extend upon the whole earth and without end. This is our king. This is our king. Wonderful, the branch. Isaiah 9 is another passage, verse 7. We love this time of year. But this is what Isaiah, what God prophesied through Isaiah. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Awesome. We know what it is for power to 
to rise and to fall. We're very conscious in the United States of this time, those of us who are a little bit older, we have a very conscious sense of, huh, our nation isn't necessarily what it once was. We have a real sense that if we don't maintain some of our power and our, our military, that there are foes that will be very happy to dispense with the United States of America. We understand that we maintain our influence, whatever it is, with, with a diminishing power. Christ will establish his throne, establish his kingdom, and this throne is David's throne. This throne is the throne of David that God had promised. God had promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would be a descendant who would sit on that throne forever without end. It's awesome. So, again, we don't know what Jesus looks like, um, I actually tend to not look at pictures of Jesus. It's, I don't think they're blasphemy, but I just don't want a picture of a, I don't want a picture of one person's face in my mind. And then when I see Jesus, I'm like, oh, that wasn't anything like it. <laughs> so I don't have a picture of Jesus, what his face looks like, but what I, I can think of, I can think of a man. I can think of the shape of a man. I can think of a glorious throne. I can think of glory. I can think of a throne. I can think of a temple. I can think of him Leading in worship, which leads us to our fifth and final lesson from this middle section. The branch, the Messiah, will be both king and priest. He will be both king and priest. In Psalm 110, this, this is prophesied. Psalm 110. Remember that in God's design, the houses or the offices of priest and king were separated and yet God had prophesied through David of all people that the ultimate king the Messiah would be both king and priest at the beginning of Psalm 110 is this wonderful prophecy where David says the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, having dominion over the midst of your enemies. So through David, God promises that there's this mysterious messianic figure who is the Lord with the Lord and who will sit at the right hand of the Lord God Almighty and have dominion. But in the very same psalm, Verse 4, Psalm 110, concerning this Messiah, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, God's saying, the, the Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Huh. So even through David, long ago, though the two offices were separated, ultimately in one man, the Messiah, the two offices, priest and king, would be united this is what Zechariah 6, this is what the picture, this, imagine this, imagine the shock of Heldai and Tobijah and Judiah. They came with this offering, they came down and they had no idea and all of a sudden this prophet of the Lord, Zechariah, meets them and says, you guys got some gold and silver? Yeah, we do. I've been ordered by God to take that and make a crown. They make the crown and then those men are there and others and in comes Zechariah and there's Zerubbabel and there's Joshua the high priest and Zechariah under the command of the of God takes that priest and goes over and sets it on the head of Joshua. 
And then they're told that this Joshua who is being crowned is an illustration, a picture of the future Messiah who will be both king and priest. And oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is such good news for us this morning. Because we need one who not only rules over this world, but we need one who intercedes for us with God. We need one who can know what it's like to be us. We need one who can come alongside us in our sin and in our guilt and and deal with our sin and our guilt and intercede for us with God. And God has appointed such a priest. And he's not in Rome. And and you don't have to go to a confessional to meet him. Uh Uh-uh. You don't have to light any candles. His name is Jesus. And according to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, the fact that Jesus is not only our king, but is our high priest is wonderful news. For in Hebrews 7, verse 25, we learn that Jesus, because of who he is, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he lives always to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is why this Christmas we celebrate the birth of the Christ because the Christ is not only the king, the descendant of David, but he is our merciful and compassionate and all-sufficient high priest who even offered up himself to bear the penalty for our sins so that all who believe in him might be forgiven of their sins, cleansed, washed, restored to God, and brought near in and through Christ. Again, As you think about Jesus, do you have this this thought, this concrete picture of this majestic man, this majestic, resurrected, glorified man who is your king, who is your priest, who intercedes for you? What a wonderful Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, and as we look at the the passage, we come now, we've, we've looked at the picture of the of these men as a, a picture of the future and gathering of the Jews. We've spent most of our time just wondering at verses 12 and 13 and this glorious picture of the future coronation of our king when he comes on this earth. And again, let me review this. You do not need to be unclear about this, okay? You don't need to have a degree in eschatology or go to seminary. Here's what's going to happen. The Lord Jesus... After the seven-year tribulation, when this world is under the judgment of God, Jesus will return physically with those who have been with him. We will be there with him. And we will return, and Zechariah says a little bit later, you have to hold on a little bit later this winter for this, he will touch down his feet on the Mount of Olives. And when he comes again, he will slay the enemies of God. He will remove sin and sinners He will establish Jerusalem as his capital city, and he will seek about rebuilding the most majestic, glorious house of worship, and he will gather there his his people, which leads us now to the third and last section in verses 14 and 15. 
this crown that Zechariah had made that went on the head of Joshua, thirdly, is a memorial to assure a future realization and encourage continued devotion. I know that's a lengthy point, but, but that's what, what God's after here. That crown was to become a memorial when that, in Zechariah's generation, when they completed the temple in that day, and they would, and it was nothing compared to Solomon's temple, and it's nothing compared to the temple that the Messiah will build in the future days, but it was a temple. And in that temple, in a prominent place, that gold and silver crown that Zechariah had made was to be set in a visible, prominent place so all the men and women who worshipped could see that God's promise of the coming king still remained. It was a promise that God would fulfill his word And in particular, two aspects of the future that God would fulfill. First, verse 15, those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. So Christ will be the chief architect. He will be the builder, but he will bring men and women to assist him in the building of this this wonderful edifice, this house of worship. And he'll use not only his his people among the Jews, he'll use those who are far off. This is cold language for Gentiles. Most of us here, I assume, are Gentiles. And we are called in Ephesians chapter 2 by Paul as those who formerly were far off. Paul's using the language here of Zechariah. We were once far from God. We were, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 12, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And in the last days when Christ returns, rebuilds the temple, there will be God-fearing Gentiles who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, men and women like us who come and as a sacrifice will offer up worship to God, even participating under the headship of Christ and the rebuilding of the temple. That crown was to foretell that future glorious day and also to serve, lastly, as an encouragement to continued obedience. The end of verse 15, notice that with this wonderful, hopeful promise and picture of the future, God says, it will happen if you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God. God's not saying that his, his promise about the future is completely dependent upon their obedience, but their participation. How, how do you participate in this glorious future? You don't just wait around for it. Uh-uh. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I got bad news. You won't participate in this. You'll be outside. You'll be a place that Jesus said would be full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, will, you are far off from God, and you will remain far off from God. But if you hear this good news of God's provision of forgiveness of sins in and through his son, Jesus Christ, if you trust in Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins, if you submit to him as your rightful king and Lord, if you trust in him as your high priest, if you turn from your sin and self-dependence and you with the Magi and other men and women adore Jesus Christ and worship him, no matter how far off you are, No matter the amount of your sins, God will cleanse you. God will forgive you. God will clothe you in the robes of his own son's own righteousness. And he'll take you from being 
an unbeliever unfit for the presence of God and make you a priest and participant in the building of the house of the worship of God. That's how you participate. By faith, by trusting in Christ, and such is the glory of these promises, dear ones, it demands, I say that's the strong word, it demands, it is worthy of our obedience now, of our anticipation now. We practice now for our future role of worship. We listen to the voice of the Lord now. We give attention to his word now. We take heed of his promises now. We live as people of the kingdom now. We participate in the worship of God now. Looking forward to the full realization of it when Jesus wears that glorious king. After all, if Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, those who were once far off, we who are redeemed and brought into Christ, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And you don't have to wait until the future kingdom to get about it. So look, as you come into the new year, whatever resolutions we have, may God cause at the foremost of them, higher than weight loss, higher than gym routines, higher than different eating habits, spending habits, whatever the case may be, may at the top of our resolutions for this coming year be, I, by God's grace and by the strength of his spirit in this coming year, I'm going to serve my coming king with more vigor, more faithfulness, more zeal. I'm going to be about the good works that God created me in Christ Jesus to do. Because the day is coming soon. According to Revelation 19, and with this I close, in verse 11, the day is coming soon when with John we are going to see, quote, heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. That's the crown. Same crown. Worship Christ the newborn priest king. So we do, oh God, we, we worship you. We worship your son, the branch. And we marvel that in your mercy and grace that even now you're calling men and women like us far off, Gentiles, sinners, no matter who we are, that by trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that we can be united with you, made participants and recipients of these wonderful promises. Fill the hearts of your people this Christmas, O God, with joy in anticipation of the kingdom, the greatest present in your Son, Jesus, that you will ever give. Oh, how we long for him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.